This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. John Graham's bed was magnificent. And for the price of 50 pounds, curious married couples could spend a night there. Though it was explicitly stated that no one would be sleeping. About 100 years before P.T. Barnum would refine the art of the showman, John was making a name for himself with his big bed and even bigger promises. John had created the 18th century version of a magical, mystical, spiritually infused love hotel and spa in the name of health and wellness. And he did it in the heart of London, in what would look something like a huge piece of performance art today. John's looks and bravado had gotten him a long way. He was smart. He was arrogant. And he described himself not just as a doctor of the body, but of the soul. Like many folks of his time, John saw the money to be made in driving cures. One avenue into this industry that he tried was becoming a surgeon, but he never graduated from medical school. For some time, he took to the American colonies to study with the luminaries of the day. It's said that in Philadelphia, he learned about electricity from one of Benjamin Franklin's collaborators, but fled back to London at the outbreak of the American Revolution. He continued traveling the continent in search of healing remedies and, of course, a quick buck. Upon his return to London, and with some success and followers in tow, he opened up his Temple of Health and Hymen on the River Thames in 1781. Graham's temple was a brilliant sight, made of stone and soaring columns, and air perfumed with spice and flowers. Candelabras glistened, and light beams danced on the mirrors as visitors were welcomed to walk the halls. There were tall stained-glass windows and lecture halls and shops to buy bottles of potions. A large statue of the goddess Hymen herself was carved in stone, seemingly looking over, and out for, everyone who entered her domain. The centerpiece of John's newly opened temple, as you now know, was his enormous, canopied, 9 by 12 foot celestial bed. Though he advertised a myriad of treatments to the general public, this was the one that turned the most heads, and for good reason. It held promise for couples who dreamed of conceiving and was designed with the latest in technological advancements. The bed moved with the arduous pair, maximizing its angle for conception. 
It was held aloft by 40 glass pillars flushed with magnets and electrical currents. Movements from the bed cued a set of pipe organs that played in rhythm and time of the people romping around, a true erotic cacophony. Although we don't have any recordings of this, the research promises that these sounds were more celestial than one might think. He sold the idea of procreation to the general public as a patriotic duty. But under that veneer, John was getting away with something else. He was talking freely about sex, and he made an entire spectacle of it, a spectacle in which those who had experienced shame around infertility could pay good money for the latest technological solution to their woes. He was quick to give out health and life advice, and people would pay him for that privilege. What John had done was tap into something that charlatans had long been in the game of. They profited on hopes and dreams, through smoke and mirrors and sly smiles. He was handsome and charming, and undoubtedly had the appeal to sell sex and solutions. He wasn't the first, or the last person, to sweet-talk their way into people's wallets with extreme promises. Alongside legitimate medical marvels, the history of medicine is likewise filled with bad ideas based on good intentions. And of course, the opposite existed as well. Bad ideas with much more selfish intent and harmful outcomes. Sometimes the intentions of those in the remedy business were hard to discern, especially when they dealt with deeply personal problems, the kind that were only whispered about. For many, that was a world of fear and shame, fertile ground that some of the greediest charlatans thrived off of. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Bedside Manners. John Romulus Brinkley mixed up a tonic and remembered his father fondly. His dad had been a mountain man and folk healer, conscripted into the Civil War as a medic before returning to his beloved North Carolina. There he studied with a country doctor, creating a practice deeply based in the mountains he loved. Little John had always wanted to grow up to be like his dad. To become a proper doctor, he was told, he had to attend medical school. The price tag for such an endeavor, however, was way out of the question. He didn't have money, but he sure dreamt of it. John grew up, left his home, and got a job as a telegraph operator. This seemed like the best option for him at the time, and he was good at it. He made a soaring $45 per month, but still he felt dissatisfied. One day he was called home. John's aunt, the last of the people who had raised him, was dying, and he would be the one to put her into the family cemetery. Standing at her graveside, he was taken with a pretty blonde who he had known earlier in life. Their courtship began, and he and Sally Wilk married about a month later in January of 1907. He and Sally's marriage would prove to be a tumultuous one, but she found it within herself to stick with him, at least for a little while. This is how she found herself as John's assistant for his traveling medicine show, moving from town to town and hawking various nostrums and cures, charming local residents with promises and answers. He was witty and entertaining to boot, performing songs and skits that extolled the virtues of everything he had to sell. The machine that was the itinerant medicine show, in which John had gotten himself wrapped up in, was reaching its peak popularity in the early 20th century. These shows sold songs and promises, all wrapped up in spectacle and canvas as their wagons rolled through town. Performers and salespeople sold patent medicines, typically proprietary blended tonics that claimed to cure everything, from blindness to hair loss to wrinkles and gout, and just about all the other things in between. 
Now, the snake oil salesman was the figure who rose to prominence during this time and permanently cemented himself in our vocabulary as shorthand for a huckster. The snake oil that was sold at shows was largely just a riff on a topical healing oil that was brought by Chinese immigrants who worked the Western railroads. What was actually in the jars that Brinkley and his ilk sold? Well, that was their secret to keep. Now, as anyone who's done seasonal or gig works know, it's a hard life. He and Sally eventually found themselves in Chicago, and he with a steadier paycheck working for Western Union. But he hated it. The dreams of practicing real medicine had never left him. He would just find another way. As medicine became more of a professional endeavor, medical schools popped up across the country. However, not all of these institutions were created equal. The worst of the worst were simply diploma mills, where anyone who could pay enough to get a piece of paper could call themselves a doctor. In 1847, the American Medical Association was founded as an answer to all of this. Their goal was to legitimize facilities and sniff out the quacks. They did their best, but it was often like playing whack-a-mole. By June of 1908, John submitted an application and had found his way to Bennett Eclectic Medical College in Chicago. While enrolled there, he did double duty as a student and telegraph operator, managing to estrange his wife and split from his family in the process. He quit school with a year left to go, figuring that he had learned enough to get a leg up. Or maybe not. You see, he would eventually enroll in the Eclectic Medical University of Kansas City, an institution which the American Medical Association and the licensing boards of 40 different states refused to recognize because of alleged unethical practices. He eventually left there too, and received a diploma from the Kansas City College of Medicine, an infamous diploma mill. It allowed him to register for a medical license in Arkansas, which at that time had reciprocity in several other states. But it wasn't just his brief attendance at medical school that would decidedly change the trajectory of John's career. No, it was something else. He found himself traveling the Midwest during the heyday of the meatpacking industry. And sometimes, inspiration strikes in the most unlikely of places. You see, while working his job one day as the resident surgeon for the Swift & Company meatpacking plant in Kansas City, Missouri, he was watching goats in the last moments of their life. They continued to exhibit vim and vigor and enthusiasm for their lady penmates. He was regaled with tales of the hardiness of these particular goats and of their ability to stay healthy even in the most disgusting of conditions. What if, he thought to himself, we humans could glean some of this vigor ourselves from these animals. And all of a sudden, an idea began to crystallize. And without knowing it, John's next chapter had begun to write itself. John knew an opportunity when he saw one. In 1916, he had answered an ad in a paper that was calling for a town doctor in Milford, Kansas. Population, 200, and he hoped that he might even stay there for a while. The intervening years had taken John all over, working odd jobs and running from debt collectors. He had been in the Army, although briefly, before a nervous breakdown earned him a discharge. He had found himself a new wife, too, even though it would later be revealed that he had failed to divorce his first. In Tennessee, he had spent some time playing doctor and employing his old medicine show tricks, working at what was essentially a proto-strip mall franchise for men and their venereal diseases. He put on a good show, selling supposed cures to sad and desperate men. What happened next has been presented in history as fact, but it very well could be a legend of John's own making. It was recounted in a book he later published about his life, 
when he had become very rich and somewhat infamous. As the story goes, an old farmer walked into his office one day. He told John that he was having trouble in the bedroom and that his ability to show up to the task had been non-existent. The farmer said it was unfortunate that he didn't have billy goat nuts before laughing at his own joke. But John wasn't laughing. He was inspired. The goat has a long cross-cultural reputation for its frisky ways. The animal has been characterized in ancient texts and fables as horny and insatiable. Pan, the half-goat, half-man in ancient Greek mythology, is a figure that comes to mind. So does one of the world's oldest aphrodisiac recipes from an 8th-century Buddhist text that called for, you guessed it, goat testicles. John later said that it was the farmer's idea and that he insisted on the surgery. However, it happened, the farmer came back that night. He dropped his pants and climbed onto John's table. And there, naked as the day he was born, John sliced open his scrotum, inserted pieces of goat testicles, and then stitched him back up. The farmer came back two weeks later, all healed up and with a check for $150. According to John's telling, the farmer claimed that he would have given him more if he could. The operation, it seems, was a success. And because whispered networks are strong in a small town, more men would soon be arriving on his doorstep. He proceeded with another operation on a man who desperately wanted a child. When he was all healed up, he brought his wife in for a goat's ovary. They wanted to double down on their efforts, it seems. And as the story goes, they had a healthy baby boy a year later, thanks to John Brinkley. They aptly named him Billy. Even as he continued his usual doctoring duties, word quickly spread of John's brave new innovation. As it did, his visions of dollar signs began to grow. He knew he needed an expert to help further get the word out, so he hired an ad man. The fellow came down from Kansas City and was immediately sold on John's new operation. It was nothing short of finding the fountain of youth, he thought, and advised John to advertise in newspapers, flyers, and mailers accordingly. He applied for a feature in the Journal of the American Medical Association and was soon met with unequivocal rejection for his practice. Medicine's governing body thought that he was bad news, but it appears that many people did not. This all might seem unbelievable, that John was actually helping his patients. We hear of the success stories, but what is also true is that John had something else working on his side, the cultural taboo around talking about sex. The operation you see was simple. He wasn't fundamentally altering the person's plumbing, but rather just inserting some extra biological material under the skin. Those, of course, posed a large risk of infection and rejection. But in the instances where this happened, or bedroom activities never improved, the shame was heavy, and the willingness of patients to speak on such matters was hard to muster. Even so, he began to attract higher-profile clients, who not only showed up at his practice, but sang his praises. Notably, the Chancellor of the University of Chicago Law School, who traveled to Milford to have the operation done and was so happy with it that he awarded John an honorary Doctor of Science degree. A deluge of interest came after that, and the subsequent and nearly immediate opening of a new hospital in Milford followed in September of 1918. It was less than a year after the family arrived in town. John and his wife Minnie broke ground for the Brinkley Jones Hospital and Training School for Nurses. Notably, as the school's vice president, Minnie signed her own diploma. In time, the community would be buoyed by his money and his newfound fame, as he committed his dollars to public works improvement projects all over town. By 1924, he was well on his way to building an empire. 
Patients had come from across Europe and South America. Some even made their way to Milford from South Asia and the South Pacific. Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth registered as nothing more than a legend in their collective imaginations. They now had the real deal. John Romulus Brinkley's Glandular Therapy. It wouldn't be long before John's wallet grew thick and the American Medical Association began to follow his trail. He had gotten their attention. They knew that he wasn't an accredited doctor to begin with, tracing his education back to diploma mills and incomplete studies. They believed that he was blatantly fleecing good folks out of their hard-earned money. Basically, they believed that John was once again back to his old medicine show tricks, but this time in a gussied-up setting. The AMA saw him as dangerous, but that didn't matter. John Brinkley's stardom would continue to climb, and if they had any hope of catching him at all, it would take everything they had. To understand the meteoric rise of John Brinkley, we first need to understand the culture in which he existed. He was able to blend the old world with the new, and made that specific moment work to his advantage. First, the old world. There were a lot of mistakes that were made over the thousands of years we've been trying to understand the body. Galen, if you remember, never operated on a person and believed that animals were an adequate substitute. In a way that seems not too dissimilar, physicians and surgeons of John's time believed that organ transplants between animals and humans were a good solution to many problems. In the early 1890s, a fellow by the name of Charles Edward Brown Saccard experimented with glandular therapy by making extracts of dog, guinea pig, and monkey testes and injecting them into his own body. It was thought that these tissues could enhance the function of the human body's corresponding tissues. You see, cultures around the world have long prized organ meat for being nutritious. It would make sense then that physicians might believe here that like supports like. We've seen this across the ages in regards to sympathetic magic and medicine, and it makes sense that this practice edged its way into modernity. After Charles Edward's experimentation, he claimed rejuvenation like he had never experienced before, and this set off a cascade of interest in manufacturing youth, and promised that science could finally turn back the body's clock. Other doctors began to follow suit with glandular therapy experiments, which resulted in thousands of men claiming to have been reinvigorated by injections or outright implantation. That said, there were many naysayers who claimed that these treatments provided nothing more than a placebo effect. But that didn't stop people from latching on hard to the hope that this kind of therapy could work for them. By the early 1920s, it was estimated that there were over 700 practitioners in the United States alone that offered some type of glandular treatment. John R. Brinkley was just one of these people, and by all accounts, one of the most successful. John had a way with people, as demonstrated earlier with his success in The Medicine Show. Growing up in North Carolina's hill country, he was of the people. His affability and cunning allowed him to transcend the class he was born into. In an odd way, he began to monetize his charm, but he was still being received as the corn-fed country doctor, even as he began moving into mansions and signing for fancy cars. He leaned on this image as he employed teams of public relations specialists to plan stories about his procedure in publications across the world. His career went global, and he took his knife on the road, slicing into the likes of movie stars and businessmen, young and old, all who wished for a second shot at youth. His appeal was almost universal in a culture that so drastically feared aging. He took his potential cocktail of legend, curiosity, and fear and blended it all up with cutting-edge technology. Enter 
the radio. Radio technology was used by other medical personalities at the time to sell their services. Think about them as earlier versions of Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil. But John Brinkley was particularly good at it. It was his voice and the transmission of his message that helped usher in the next chapter of his career. John obtained his radio license in 1923 and began broadcasting on KFKB, his own private station. It proved to be a potent instrument as it carried his message into thousands of homes across the Midwest. It was part entertainment, part call-in show, and part gospel. It seemed that there was nothing that John couldn't provide. He made it onto the radio, and the radio helped make him. His listeners were invited to call the good doctor about their ailments. On air, John would take their messages and stories about what ailed them and listen thoughtfully. He would then prescribe his own proprietary antidotes, which listeners were then encouraged to purchase through his own private pharmacy. It gave those at home the idea, too, about how they could cure themselves. He was a one-man WebMD before such a thing ever existed. And his phone continued to ring off the hook, and his physical practice boomed. By one estimate, he was making the current equivalent of about half a million dollars per week from his office there in Milford, Kansas, enough to eke out a living fit for a king. The American Medical Association, though, was trying their darndest to put an end to what they saw as charlatanism. In the end, 42 people would die as a result of his operations, with thousands more having gone under his scalpel and stitch. In fact, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association, a man named Morris Fishbein, was particularly keen on making sure that John was stripped of his practice and exposed for the fraud that he believed him to be, having worked for years to mount a case against him. In September of 1930, the Kansas State Medical Board convened in Milford to observe an operation by John Brinkley. The 12 members of the board squeezed themselves along the walls of John's small operating room and nodded greetings to his patient, Mr. X, on the table. In a moment's time, Minnie Brinkley brought forth a baby goat. With just a few snips, he was relieved of his testicles, and in 45 minutes' time, pieces of them would belong to the lucky Mr. X. Less than two days later, the Kansas State Medical Board would unequivocally revoke John's license on the grounds of organized charlatanism. Morris Fishbein, had decidedly won this battle. But he hadn't yet won the war. John refused to go quietly. In fact, he got louder. He amped up his efforts on the radio waves and eventually ran for governor of Kansas. He decided that if he won, he would appoint his own medical board. However, John thankfully lost, and with it, he soon lost his radio license. Not only that, but postal inspectors began building a mail fraud case against him. So in 1933, he decamped his entire operation to a small Texan border town named Del Rio. From there, he set up a radio station named XERA right next door in Mexico, where he could legally still broadcast from. There, he continued broadcasting right back into the U.S., spreading his very specific flavor of medicinal gospel. Even still, Morris Fishbein wasn't finished with him. In 1938, he published a two-part series in the American Medical Association's magazine entitled Modern Medical Charlatans that aimed to take John Brinkley and everything he stood for down. Yet John wasn't going down without a fight. Armed with a team of the best lawyers, he sued Morris for libel, but this proved to be his undoing. The trial began on March 22nd of 1939. Soon after, John's world began to crumble. In the trial, he was formally linked to the diploma mills, and it became clear that he had no real medical license. 
The lawsuits began to pour in and his practice collapsed. The IRS mounted an investigation into tax fraud and John was forced to file for bankruptcy, which shortly preceded the U.S. Postal Service's investigation into widespread accusations of mail fraud as it was linked to his practice. It was a house of cards, and it had all come tumbling down. His heart attacks, three in all, came swiftly and fiercely. John died of heart failure in 1942, utterly penniless. The supposed healer of so many people had been unable to cure himself. And the aftermath of his career is a bit messy. Yes, Morris Fishbein was correct that John had purchased his degrees, inflated his mythology, and sought to exploit the vulnerable to get rich. But it's still believed by some that glandular therapies are legitimate and can be helpful. In fact, Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. Philip S. Hench was awarded a Nobel Prize for his work in this area. But thankfully, those treatments look a bit different now than they did back in John Brinkley's time. These days, the glandular derivatives are taken in pill form, readily available at your local supplement shop. A quick scan will reveal pills made from animal proteins that suggest that they can support spleens and thiamuses and testicles and prostates, among other things. These pill bottles, like fat screw-top soldiers, can often be found stacked up and down the wall of a shop, promising a cure for this ailment and then some. And it makes you wonder, how far we've come from the days of the traveling medicine show, which was ripe with hope and promises, all of which could be yours for just a few dollars. The world of medicine is full of mysteries and surprises. It historically, too, has been full of smoke and mirrors. But sometimes behind all of that, something amazing appears. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, my teammate Robin Miniter will tell you all about one such discovery. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024... You deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. To the untrained eye, a desert can seem barren. It's hot, it's cold, and it can sometimes be hostile. But when Curtis House Springer laid eyes on almost 13,000 acres of California's Mojave Desert, he knew that its potential was no mirage. The last of the medicine men, as he liked to call himself, saw the making of an oasis at the end of the four-mile-long dirt road in visions of his big, fat bank account. He saw visions of palm trees and blue swimming pools. He saw a hotel and cottages. He imagined phony hot springs materializing, and he saw a remote place, all his own, where he could conduct his business. In September of 1944, he filed for a mining permit in order to secure the land known as Soda Springs for his own extraction, according to the paperwork. But he had other plans. Curtis's first order of business was to round up laborers from Los Angeles Skid Row and put them to work, constructing a place he called the Zizix Mineral Springs and Health Resort. Zizix would function as a retreat where he promised internal, external, and eternal cleanliness, all for a price, of course. He was offering holistic and homeopathic cures, a variety of proprietary tonics, but as to what exactly was in all of them, well, that was for him to know and maybe not for guests to find out. To this day, Zizix, spelled Z-Z-Y-Z-X, is still the last place listed alphabetically on the American Atlas. An intentional choice, as Curtis wanted it to be the last word in health. Like the other medicine men of his day, it's hard to tell what's fact from fiction in Curtis's life. By 1939, the Tireless American Medical Association published a paper that named him as one of the most infamous quacks of the era, cutting down any claims that he had any kind of degree or any medical school training whatsoever. That didn't stop him, though, from having a prolific career over the syndicated radio waves. Like his contemporaries, who were also in on the game, this gave him ample opportunity to charm his way into the home and pockets of anyone who turned the dial. Curtis continued to build his proverbial house on a foundation of sand, also erecting a chapel and lecture halls, a boulevard, and even a man-made lake. And for over 30 years, those committed to the gospel of health came, lounged, and drank their concoctions by the pool. They did this happily, until they didn't. By 1969, the year that the AMA crowned Curtis the king of the quacks, he had been arrested for fraud, but not medical fraud. The Bureau of Land Management, not exactly a stranger to the operation he was running, but surely tired of it, caught word that he was attempting to sell parcels of Zizix to his generous donors. The problem was, though, that this wasn't his land to sell. He didn't own it. In 1974, he was convicted of squatting and given less than three days to completely evacuate himself and the three decades of his life's work. Curtis certainly lied a lot about who he was and what his accomplishments were, but, it seems, a lot of the advice he gave was sound, and doctors still recommend much of it today. For example, get plenty of rest, stay hydrated, eat your vegetables, have some lean meat, get some sun, don't drink, don't do drugs. And, as it turns out, there was some real wisdom among his smoke and mirrors, if you could find it. We might never know all the recipes for his alleged miracle cures, but we do know that, for the most part, they were actually quite harmless. 
It turns out that he was particularly heavy-handed with baking soda, an ingredient that we still frequently use today in certain antacids, like Alka-Seltzer. And yes, while Curtis did prey on the rich, selling them mysterious cures for a pretty penny, it's also said that no one was ever turned away from his resort because of lack of funds. He may have been a charlatan, but in certain situations, at least, he was a philanthropic one. Grim and Mild Presents Bedside Manners was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Robin Miniter. Writing for this season was provided by Robin Miniter, with research by Sam Alberti, Taylor Hagerdorn, and Robin Miniter. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. You can learn more about this show, the Grim and Mild team, and all the other podcasts that we make over at GrimAndMild.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.